Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. End of the day. End of the day. It's all about practicing, practicing medicine. Practicing medicine at the end of one. So who talks first? You talk first. I talk first. Hey everyone. Uh, whether it's morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you happen to be in the world today, I want to welcome you to our podcast called At the End of the Day. This is a podcast about the lost art of medicine for those who are dissatisfied with healthcare status quo. As always, my name is Andy DeLeo, a.k.a. The Cancer Geek, and I'm here with my co-conspirators. Hey, Andy. Hey, Wes. Good evening, afternoon, whatever it is. I'm in Minnesota, and the skies are gray no matter what time, so I have no understanding of what time is anymore. Yeah, I woke up with some uh, major dandruff on my grass this morning, so uh, it's a bit chilly here as well. Oh, boy. How's the Jersey Shore doing? Jersey Shore, we had a, a cold front, and now it's just raining all weekend long, so I feel the dread. There you go. <laughs> How's the week been going? Well, you know, oh, sorry. Actually, I was going to say, the fact that we're talking about gray skies and the dread of the weekend to come, yeah, it's great, we don't have to work, but it's gray, it's raining, it's cold, it's snowing, it kind of goes right into our first topic, which is about Dis or not distancing. Uh, it's actually about loneliness in a time of social distancing. And I think, you know, sort of as we transition into the fall and winter, for those of us that live high enough within the U.S. where, you know, it's not sunny all the time, uh, we do get snow. It means that we're going to be probably more and more isolated in the midst of this pandemic. As you guys are sort of getting a preview of that this weekend, are you guys thinking of doing anything to try and keep yourselves occupied or in a positive, upbeat mood this weekend? Oh, Wes, take it away. I got to think about it. So truthfully, Andy, I have absolutely no plans for this weekend, and I'm just looking forward to staying in at home, not having any agenda, not having anything to do, light the fireplace, um, and maybe just watch a movie with the kids, get a book, and just kind of really chill this weekend. So that's my plan. Hopefully I can commit to that and not have anything come up. I'm actually in the opposite boat of West, so I am feeling the itch of cabin fever. And I'm going to be looking up some Finnish and Nordic type of recipes for winter. What What do people do? And the Nordic heritage in me is just saying, get the heck outside even if it means just going, starting a, a random blazing fire in a snowstorm. I have a big fire pit that I built. Maybe I'll just go build a big fire outside and just stand there and start painting my face with some old Norse symbols and strip down to just my underwear and start screaming at <laughs> Thor and Odin. And, you know, you never know. Oh, that sounds awesome. Make sure that if you're going to use a Nordic symbol that you use the Degas symbol because it looks like a bow tie and it looks like an N of one and hey, you know, why not? There you go. The first topic that I'm going to address is the topic of loneliness. And we're going to focus on a study that came out of Scotland with the Scottish government. This study was just over 1400 people. About 84, 85% of the people in the study were actually age uh, 60 years and older. 
And what the end point or what the study was trying to establish is that during this pandemic, they wanted to understand the impact of social distancing during the pandemic and the impact that it had on social activity, loneliness, and overall well-being, especially in the population 60 years of age and older. What they found is that there was an increase in loneliness, especially in that age group of 60 years and older. They actually saw a 56% increase in loneliness. They also saw a decrease in those people that were being active outside, whether it was walking or running or any sort of type of physical activity. They saw a 40% decrease in that. I think what's interesting about this is, is that because of the pandemic, because of social distancing, there is a population or a demographic that is probably more at risk than at least my demographic or, or yours or others that may be listening. And it is that population that's 60 years of age and older because they tend to, to just not have as big of a a social network or maybe their family has moved away and so it becomes a little bit more difficult for them. I'm going to pause and just open it up to the both of you. What are you seeing? What are you feeling observing during this pandemic? I will say the last month I have been feeling a little bit more depressed because of the social distancing. I, when I interact with people outside of my house, it's almost like eating candy. It's so exciting. It's so vibrant to life. And when I see neighbors, when we're walking and we stop and talk at a distance, I do miss even having like high fives and quick side hugs with friends. And that's just me. I'm more extroverted in that way. But I think what it is, is just those daily interactions and conversations with people. And you can only talk to a six and a four year old about life, the universe and everything so much before they get lost in the conversation and say, okay, I'm gonna go play with my Legos. It, it, is, it is part of that, I think, um, keeping your brain active to be a part of conversation, a part of society, a part of culture. We're, we're social beings and that just is the core of who we are. And I think it's just been slowly declining. And I think with the winter months, we're gonna have to isolate even more because of how things are spiking right now with COVID. I did find, and OS, after you share your story, I did find some good articles on how to manage loneliness during a pandemic. And there's some good tips and tricks in here I think we should talk through and see if there's any validity to them. Thanks, AJ, and I'd love to hear about them. And I have a couple of uh, thoughts on tips and tricks as well. You know, what I think is really happening over here on the East Coast is people just don't care anymore. I think they've let their guard down. They're out and about, the parks are full, the gyms are starting to fill back up, restaurants are starting to fill back up, you know, again, to a 25% capacity, but everyone has really let their guard down. And I think we're starting to see an increase in COVID cases, which is going to put us in trouble in the next upcoming months, especially as we approach the holidays. Coming out of it, I I know just for myself, I felt very lonely, you know, as we went into this pandemic in the earlier months, especially around March, April, um, and we couldn't do anything. We couldn't go outside. The weather was cold here on the East Coast. You know, that's my biggest fear. What are we going to do? It's mid-November now. As we get into December, January, things start to increase and we can't do anything, we don't have physical activity, how are we going to prepare for this? 
And AJ, I'd love to get your thoughts on some tips that you have for our general listeners and what we should do to prepare. Andy, what are your what are your thoughts? I'd love to kick it back to you and what you're seeing and what you're experiencing. Uh, <laughs> so I actually have kind of a, a funny antidote. Late last week, I had some, I guess, news that I needed to, to share with someone and sort of get off my chest. And I've got... One person who's a really good friend, been friend for for quite some time, and it's kind of the person that I share quite a bit with. And I tried getting a hold of him, and he happens to be trying to live through and prepare for a, a tropical storm right now. So I couldn't get a hold of him. And I sat there afterwards, and I was kind of like, okay, who am I going to call next? And I was like, I don't think I have anyone else I can call right now. And so it was a moment in which I sort of had that extreme overwhelming realization that, wow, because of what's going on, I just feel really kind of alone. And it, you know, was slightly depressing. Like many others, you know, I sort of put my big boy panties on and got through it. So so that was just kind of, you know, my own personal antidote. What I was thinking about is when it comes to sort of, you know, tips and tricks, I know we've talked about other, you know, like tips that, that we can do that we're leveraging or utilizing on a daily basis with work and stuff. But one of the articles that I think the three of us also read had 18 sort of like tips and tricks. I read through them and what I did is growing up with David Letterman in his top 10, I narrowed the 18 down to what I thought was the top 10. I'm just gonna go through those real quick and then we can sort of discuss and see if you guys at least agree with my top three or if you're like, no, you're crazy and we wish you would have picked this one instead. How's that sound? Great, let's do it. Sounds good. So number 10. Be active online. It's also about having a, a real conversation, be in a chat group, be on a tweet chat. Number two. Number nine. Talk to strangers. If you're going to the store or if you're going to, to get a coffee or going to get gas, just say hello. Uh, number eight. Try and do more things with people. Number seven. In your spare time, making sure that you're in the present moment, turning off all the rings, dings, pings, and other things, and you're just focusing on the people in that moment and enjoying it. Number six, connect in real life again, making sure that you're making eye contact, pausing enough to actually let someone speak to understand, not to respond. Number five, sharing something that is true to you. Number four, self-kindness, be kind to ourselves. Number three, making sure that we're giving part of ourselves to someone else. Number two, it's to be in awe of something. And number one, the authenticity, sharing stuff that is real. We often see Photoshop pictures, we see our best selves versus sort of the, the grit and the dirt and the harsh reality of what life is actually like. It's truly sort of embodying that 36.2 M every moment that matters and even the dark, nasty, scary, dirty ones being bold and brave enough to, to share. Uh, what do you think are the top one or two tips from, from your perspective? I'm going to have a hot take for you, Andy. I think a lot of those that you said were more revolved around just being social in any way you can. And I think 
about eight of those could be summed up in just be social and, and online. When you go out, be kind to others. Just have that sense of community, however you can find it. I think there's more that we need. And I think for mental well-being, for our physical well-being, one of the biggest tips that I've taken away and I've started implementing is just movement. I, I forgot how much through quarantine I've stopped moving. And I did Cosmic Kids Yoga with my kids yesterday. And it was 20 minutes of yoga and it was great. And it totally kicked my butt. With our new puppy too, I take her for walks twice a day. And just getting out and moving, that little bit has been so beneficial. One of the things for our well-being too is how can we engage with being outdoors more? Because what I've learned with working with the Well Living Lab is we spend 90% of our times indoors as it is. And the more outside we are, the better our health is, the better our immune system is, the better our microbiome is. It influences all of those things just by being outdoors. So with winter, we need to have that for us in the North here, the Scandinavian approach of what kind of activities can we do outside beyond just walking or sledding? You know, can we do maybe wake up in the morning, run out in your swimming trunks and roll in the snow and then run back in the house? You know, those kind of shocks to the system have been scientifically proven to to be good for you, to be beneficial. That's why Finnish people jump into frozen lakes in the middle of winter, just to kind of shock you awake a little bit. I think those those eight things that can be rolled up into being social is great. We need that social connection and we need that physical connection to to be to be active, to be moving, to to get the blood flowing because I think there is a body-mind connection where I know I am sharper, I feel better and I tend to have a better mood in general when I'm moving. And it's not, it doesn't have to be extreme exercise. It's just walking around the block a couple times, just in any way being active. I'm curious, Andy, what you think about my hot take on your stuff. I think there's a difference between sharing. I think there's a difference between being social. And I think there's a difference between sort of actually connecting with others, uh, especially those that are, you know, near us, that are in our community, whether it's in our neighborhoods or, or whatnot. So I completely agree. I think, honestly, I think it's those meaningful relationships that because of social media, now because it's amplified with this enforced sort of distance between people, that there's more sort of walls that have gone up. And I think we're just all forgetting what it's actually like to have a sense of community, to interact with one another. It's sad because I think this is the difference between those of us who sort of grew up pre-digital world and in an analog world, you are forced to just do these things. And it's almost becoming where it's unnatural and people are forgetting how to just simply reach out and connect with someone else. Um, that's a very good point. We're gonna have to relearn a lot of skills after this is all done. So if we were playing a game and I had to match, Andy, what you've put up as your top 10, I would score zero because nothing that I have put up uh, matches what you just mentioned. The way I look at the tips and tricks as far as how to prevent loneliness um, is very similar to some of the things that I had to learn about a year and a half ago when I left the clinic and started working remotely and working from home. 
So one of my biggest concerns was how am I going to deal with the fact that I'm not going to have the social interaction that I'm accustomed to being in a clinic and working with my colleagues who are my friends and seeing patients on a regular basis. And the advice that a couple of my friends gave to me was to create structure and don't make your weekends into your weekdays. You know, make sure you separate the two, even though you're going to be home for the majority of the time make sure you create some structure and a part of that is changing your clothes regularly you know it's so easy to get into the habit of just waking up and just going straight into your office but make it a habit make it a point like all right i'm going to work so i'm going to go ahead and take a shower i'm gonna have my breakfast and then i'm gonna go into my office and get started with my work aj to your point i think it's very important it's imperative to stay active um, and I really like your idea. We were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, looking at a system like the Oculus, which I know is very high tech and, you know, extravagant. But I like the idea of even using something similar like that to become active or just as simply going for a walk or taking a break, a mental break. And then the other thing I would recommend is creating social opportunities. You know, there's a lot of games that you can play with your friends and family, such as Jackbox um, that are online. Um, and I know my, my family sends me a bunch of links for different types of games that they want to play. Use that as an opportunity to re-engage and play video games that you would play with people in person, but through a online platform. Oh, that's a really good way to engage in that community. I think especially games like Among Us, where you can be playing in real time and communicating. Yeah, exactly. Would be super fun. And I have a couple games that I've downloaded one of them being Star Wars Squadrons that I'm just this weekend, I'm like, I'm going to actually spend like an hour playing this game. I can't wait because during the weekday, I don't have time, but on the weekends, I'm going to have time to just kind of game a little bit. And another, another really good one is called Guess the Spy. So I would highly recommend that game as well. You can download it on the iPhone app. That sounds good. I also like uh, Mario Kart. You can friend other people and do multiplayer games with your friends in real time, which is super fun. Interesting. Interesting. I was going to say in uh, in Mario Kart, AJ, who do you uh, do you have a go to character that you pick? So when I used to play Mario Kart in Japan, when it was like a four player thing, I was always Toad. He was my dude. But on the Mario Kart for iOS, I actually unlocked the Mario with the traditional um, Hakama kimono outfit for the anniversary. And I love that guy. So he's my pick. Sweet. OS, have you played Mario Kart before? I played it back when it was on Nintendo 64. Ooh, good times. So that kind of, that date, that dates me. So who is your go-to? I don't know. Usually just Luigi. He's got a Luigi face. I do. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say my go-to character back on N64 and, you know, even today, it's, it's Yoshi. I I always have to go with Yoshi. He's my favorite character. That explains a lot. You you carry everybody on your back, making sure they win. (laughs) (laughs) Yahoo! (laughs) Yoshi! I love it. So uh, since we're talking about Mario Kart and racing, um, that actually might be sort of an interesting segue into the power of representation and leadership roles. Uh, So with that, Wes, do you want to kind of take us into the next uh, segment? Yeah. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So there was an interesting article in Forbes magazine, which was written by Rebecca Bastin, uh, which talked about Camilla Harris and her most recent achievement in becoming the vice president-elect of the United States. Rebecca talks about how Camilla Harris had to work harder 
dream bigger in order to achieve such a groundbreaking or, you know, I guess, ceiling shattering feat. Um, and by doing so, she has carved the pathway for others who may want to pursue a similar goal. Marion Wright Edelman famously said, you can't be what you can't see. And this statement refers to us as humans to be able to see ourselves in positions that are occupied by individuals with similar qualities and backgrounds. So watching Camilla Harris become the first woman, the first black and Indian person in the second highest position of the United States paints a picture that anything is possible. Um, and as Camilla said in her victory speech, while I may be the first woman in this office, I won't be the last. Because every little girl watching tonight sees that this is a country of possibilities. Now, I don't want to get too political, but I think this is a story that talks about something that we all strive for. We all define success differently and aspire to different goals. We have role models that we look up to as having conquered a goal and we want to emulate their achievements in our own ways or lives. So I would love for you guys to think about who is your role model or someone that you look up to and what qualities do they have that make you want to be more like them. And then finally, do you feel they represent you in some way or make it easier for you to accomplish your goals by perhaps pa um, paving the way before you? For me, I think there's there's a couple of, whether I want to call them role models or influences, one of them, Angel Gonzalez, just turned 60 uh, today, and he leads a uh, creative agency in Spain. And I had the privilege of meeting Angel probably six or seven years ago. I was so inspired by how he approaches creativity and marketing and how he just kind of one day said that he was tired of working for somebody else and just went out on his own and created this amazing agency that does work for large corporate conglomerates, not just in Europe, but all over the world. For him, to me, it's about bravery. It's about creating your own pathway, uh, determining what your own journey is. So I would say he's he's one that has sort of been this this powerful influence. I think the second one in for most people that know me, I'm a huge Seth Godin fan, part of his tribe. I believe, you know, when it comes to to the world of marketing, uh, Seth Godin is the the godfather of that. Uh, and I've had the privilege of meeting Seth, I think, four times um, in my life. I've been able to, to spend, you know, significant amounts of time being in Seth's presence, learning from him, understanding from him. And I think what Seth teaches me and reminds me on a daily basis is that I have to get past sort of that lizard brain, that fear of my voice or someone not valuing my voice, that my voice matters. Uh, so I would say he's a, a second one. And then I've got two more. Um, I think the third one, some people may get tired of me saying, it truly is my, my father. He didn't, you know, graduate from high school. He had to drop out of high school when he was 15 or 16. Both of his parents were, were passed away by that time. He sort of bounced, you know, from couch to couch between his family members. He entered the Marine Corps at the age of 17, you know, had two active tours of duty in Vietnam, 
but was able to get his GED, went to, to college, didn't finish because he needed to provide for his family and stuff, but traveled all around the world and had these unique experiences and just was so intelligent and fearless. And the one thing that uh, he did better than anyone that I've ever come across is he was just brutally honest. Like he didn't care who you were, what position you had. If this is what he saw as the truth, he just blurted it out and told you how it was. And if you didn't like it too bad. And then I think the, the fourth one is a physician, Elizabeth Hawk. And she is someone that's, you know, near and dear to me. She's early in her career, but she has proven that as a female physician leader in this world of medicine specific to radiology, that she's shattered all sorts of barriers. Traditionally, when you come out, you have to choose, are you gonna be an academic or private practice? She's both. She's staff at Stanford. So, you know, one of the premier academics, if not the premier academic in the US. Uh, she is a president uh, within her private practice group with Radiology Partners, which is the largest private practice group in the US. She has, you know, built her own companies. She leads AI innovation. She's leading leadership and diversity uh, within professional societies across the globe. And she's one of those people that between all of the facets of being a mother, being a scientist, being a physician, being a CEO, that I'm inspired and in awe of what she does. And so I would say if I had to kind of group the, the four sort of people that influence me to be my best version, I would say it's those four. How about you, AJ? As I was thinking through who I would say would be the role models, I tend to I tend to find a common thread through all of them and that, that they're rebels with a conscious, that people who are true to what they ideologically believe and live it, breathe it, eat it, everything. So from everyone, from one of my most recent books that I've read is from Nadia Tolokonikova, who is a member of the Russian punk rock band Pussy Riot. And she read a book called Read and Riot. And the context of understanding what she's gone through, she was in a gulag in Siberia for, I believe, three, four years. And all because they had some songs that they performed publicly that were anti-Putin the amount of stuff that she's gone through just for the things that she believes in is astounding and her strength and her veracity for compassion for other human beings and that's that's the common thread with these rebels that i that i find as role models is they are trying to fight for something that's bigger than themselves something that benefits a lot of people i tend to find people like that Martin Luther King Jr., you know, Che Guevara early in my life was an influence, even though I do not condone his actions, I condone his character. When you see somebody who wholly believes in what they're doing when on his days off were down at the docks helping the workers unload boats, he could have rested on the laurels of his position, but he was down there with the common people doing everything he could to help. Those are the kind of people I find as role models. The Stoics of old, 
old writings of samurais from Japan. Those are the kind of books I devour and I just love to see. Um, Dionysus, or not Dionysus, excuse me, Diogenes, you know, the guy who lived in a, a bowl like a big pot, like a dog for a month, just to say he could, who went through, put himself through trials just to say, you know what, if I can survive that, I can survive anything in life. Those are the kind of people I look up to as role models. How about you, OS? I don't know how I can top uh, you and Andy's list, but uh, I'll give it a shot. I mean, I think profession... That's not a competition. Come on. <laughs> it's always a competition. Um, I think professionally, you know, we all have our individuals that have helped us shaped our careers, our pathways, our trajectories in some way. And, you know, I have those individuals. You know, I think my uncle played a huge uh, role in the person that I am today. You know, there's uh, Dr. Seth Blacksburg, who's helped me tremendously professionally. Robert Gaffar, uh, who's kind of helped me shape my career. Jonathan Haas, who's taught me how to, you know, be a leader. And, you know, I respect them for a lot of the things that they've accomplished and, you know, how they've helped me. But what I want to talk a little bit about, and I want to go off a tangent, um, as I usually do, and talk about someone named Ed Bolian. And most people probably don't know him, but he is a car enthusiast, as am I. What he did was he did something called a cannonball run. And essentially what a cannonball run is, you start off at a uh, parking garage in New York City and drive as fast as you can across the country to the Portofino Hotel in L.A. So there's world record holders that do this. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, essentially, you're going to get a car, you're going to trick it out, you're going to add extra fuel cells, you're going to figure out what time of the day you're going to leave, you're going to figure out where you're going to stop, how you're going to refuel, and obviously every minute counts. What traffic is going to look like based on the cities that you're going to arrive in, and it's a whole calculated methodology of making the fastest time. So there was a guy that did it you know, back in the 70s in like 40 hours. And then Ed had this desire to do it for a couple of years and he had planned for it, saved up a lot of money for it and got co-drivers and spotters and then, you know, police aversion uh, technologies, you know, laser jammers, CB radios um, and all this technology put into his car to be able to do it and driving as fast as he can across the country and not getting pulled over, arrested and, um, you know, causing an accident, killing himself or others. And he did it and he completed and he broke the record and he did it in... I forgot, maybe 28 hours and some change, um, which was a world record for a while. But he inspired other people to do it. And what was interesting about him is rather than telling people you can't do it, he helped everyone else that wanted to take on this task. And he kind of became the godfather of this cannonball run that he re resurrected. He helped people pave the way, gave them ideas, gave them tricks. Not to say, listen, I hold a record, you can't beat me and I don't want anyone touching it. He said, let me help you. I think this is the kind of car you should get. This is how you should do it. And really help these guys to beat his own record. And there have been a lot of people that came after him that beat his record, but they seeked his advice in how to do it, how to be better at it. And I think I respect that a lot. And for a person to... That's good leadership. Yeah. for you know, And again, I know this doesn't have to deal with healthcare, but I think that's a quality that we all should strive for. It's not about us. It's about the greater good. Um, and I, I, I love the story of what he's been able to accomplish with his cannibal and his mastery of the art of speeding, I guess. Now, respectfully speeding or speeding with permission. And by no means do I encourage this type of behavior or say that you guys should all go out and do it. I think uh, there's a huge risk and I'm not condoning it by any means. Nope. Sorry. I think you totally condone it and we're all going to start cannibal running. <laughs> 
<laughs> Listen, I'll be your spotter. I don't think I'll there do it go. on my own, but I'll be your spotter. No, I think what you touched on, OS, is an awesome point of good leadership is you strive for your best and you share that knowledge to prop up the next generation to do their best. And that is something I've seen in some cities around the U.S. that I admire with startup culture and entrepreneurship is when these companies make it, they turn around and say, who can we help to learn from our mistakes, learn from our success, and be better than what we've been able to accomplish? That's the kind of leadership I think the three of us are striving for too. Absolutely. One question as as the lowest of melaton in my skin member of the podcast, when when we talk about representation and leadership, a lot of times we see businesses talk about their striving to ascertain a certain percentage or numbers of black, African-American, female, uh, minority type of metrics in leadership. And I, I understand where the sentiment is coming from. Sometimes, and this is very case by case, but sometimes it does come across as trying to pander to the times of this is what people want and we're doing it because we'll look bad and lose money as a business. How, how do you see businesses and corporations activities of trying to better their diversity of representation and leadership roles? And do you see it as a genuine reflection of changed culture or is it a reaction to the times to not lose sales? Uh, thanks. I'll see if I uh, can catch it without fumbling. So I think there's a, a couple of things with this specific question. So having worked on a couple of different sides within medicine, I can say that on the corporate side, I think it's been sort of this cultural movement and momentum that's kind of started with years ago with activism and feminism but i think in in the last sort of decade or so it's continued to sort of uh propel from from that uh and so i think because culturally we're seeing more in the news we're seeing more awareness uh there's maybe some more statistics and data that show uh diverse led organizations are you know providing more shareholder value to, you know, Wall Street and publicly traded companies. I think that's sort of just a cultural phenomenon that's happening. Um, good, bad, worse, whatever it may be, I just, I think that's a sign of the times. For me, I can point back to a conversation that I had with Dr. Sherry Cannon. Uh, and I think I had this conversation maybe two or three years ago. Uh, and I remember telling her that I really enjoyed sort of listening to her talk on leadership and mentorship and, and how she views things. Uh, she happens to be the chair of radiology at one of the academics uh, in the U.S. And I told her that I felt female-led organizations, it's time for that, especially in medicine. That if we're going to transition from the scaled mediocrity of healthcare back into the art of medicine, which is what physicians and patients want, that has to be led and driven by 
female leaders. And she asked me why. And I said, the reality is, is that since the beginning of Hippocrates, men have tried to lead and we've failed. We have effed it up and created this mediocrity thing that we call healthcare that is not generating the care that any of us want. So in order to get back to sort of the roots, the compassion, the empathy, the ground truth of what we all seek and desire and crave out of medicine, that it has to be led by, by females. Uh, females of all colors, all nationalities across the globe and whatnot. I have been so bold is that I've actually stood up in front of large professional organizations that typically uh, you look out to the crowd and they happen to be a sea of, you know, older white professional men. Uh, and I've said this um, because I do think that 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 shift in that tide needs to happen. And and that's just sort of my end of one as an insider. But I think the more diverse we are and I think the more that we lead that way, I think the better off the world is going to be. Andy, that's some really good perspective. And I think I would like to talk about this deeper in another episode because I, I have a lot of questions I'd like to follow up and not to be combative, but just to understand, because these are a lot of people and perspectives that are different from mine and world and life experiences that are things that I've never had to go through. And I find that the more I can ask questions and the more I can learn, the better I can be an advocate or a helper and, and be better type of thing. And that's true for everything. So before a Wes jumps off, because he's got another meeting to go to, since we're talking about people who are tired of the status quo in, in healthcare, I want to get back to the roots of medicine. I wanted to share a little bit about what I've been going through personally in healthcare of late because I think it, it ties into getting back to the end of one in medicine. I recently went to go refill a prescription for my asthma inhaler because thanks to my parents smoking while I was growing up, I have adult onset asthma when I turned 38, which is phenomenal. Unbeknownst to me, there was a coupon applied to my Symbicort prescription when I started getting it. And after a year, apparently that coupon expired. So going from $35 a month, my Symbicort prescription now costs about $300 a month, roughly thereabouts. And the best coupon that I could find doing my own research because the pharmacy couldn't find any in their systems was lowering that monthly cost to $255 a month for an inhaler. And I asked about a generic and the generic costs $255 a month. So it's no better off. This is the frustration is the luxury of being able to breathe is now almost unaffordable cost because I have insurance. I have healthcare and this prescription that helps me breathe, the very act of living is seemingly astronomical. It's very similar to, in my mind, the insulin issues that are going on right now. And I wanted to get your two, your two takes from a perspective where you have way more experience in healthcare than I do. But as an outsider looking at this, uh, I just wanted to say, why can't you just make the cost, the cost of that coupon since it came from the manufacturer 
to make it that price. If if you are still making a profit at that reduced price, then just make it that price. What do you guys think about that? AJ, don't get me started on uh, the cost of healthcare from a patient perspective. So I just pulled up in front of me, as you both know that, uh, you know, I had twins and they were born uh, premature. So they had to spend a little bit of time in the NICU. So I just got a bill for $139,000 and 800, uh, sorry, $139,814. Holy crap. And so after insurance was applied, my payment now, which is due is $44,219. Good grief. Good grief. So yeah, I'm gonna dispute this and see where it ends up. But, uh, you know, I think there is something that has to be done with healthcare. I mean, you know, we strive to provide the best healthcare as clinicians, but understanding what insurance is doing and what's happening um, from a patient payer perspective, I think really needs to be analyzed and looked at. $44,000 for the privilege of having a child is insane. And by the way, any argument against some type of nationalized healthcare system in order for a nation to succeed you have to have children if you want a economically viable nation you have to have kids so you can keep the workforce going so any right-wing talking point against this is to me asinine because everything that they tout as metrics of success have to be down the line, you have to be able to afford to have children. You have to be able to afford to educate your children to be a good workforce. And you have to be able to have those children make a living so that they can afford to be productive members of society. If if the end goal is GDP and you know the stock market going up, then if people can't survive and their basic needs aren't met, they can't contribute to the bottom line of a nation. And the fact that you have to spend $44,000, by the way, twins aren't a planned thing. So, whoopsie, guess you owe us another $30,000 extra because you had your babies prematurely. Stupid. <laughs> uh, you know, I think we've touched on this a, a couple of times. And, you know, I think it it would actually be a, a great sort of topic for a future episode. But... There is a reality of financial toxicity, whether it's cancer, whether it's, you know, uh, having children, uh, whether it's uh, having to pay for asthma medication or, or if you've got headache, med- chronic headaches and headache medication, it's astronomical. And there is a huge sort of reality that needs to be addressed. Um, as far as like some tips, you know, just very quickly when it comes to prescriptions, uh, I know of one uh, that can be pretty good at times, which is good RX. They usually have some some pretty good coupons and, and things to help. I also know that at least from a oncology perspective, uh, going directly to the manufacturer and finding if they've got rebates, if they've got coupons, oftentimes can sort of call and talk to someone and based on sort of your financial situation, uh, they can usually figure something out to make it uh, less costly and hopefully slightly more affordable. But it's a huge issue. And 
we could spend many podcasts just kind of going over, you know, the the billing and the rebates and how things are done as far as average selling price uh, when it comes to the to pharmaceuticals. So I'm not going to belabor that because uh, we'll be here forever. Yeah. And just to give everyone a, a bigger picture of our healthcare situation. So my wife and I both own our own businesses. We're small business owners. We pay for insurance out of pocket. Last year, when we reported to our healthcare uh, marketplace, conglomerate Minsure, how much our income was as to small self-owned businesses, we made a few thousand dollars too much to qualify for the rebate we were getting the year previously. So our monthly out-of-pocket healthcare costs for a family of four went from $720 a month to $1,600 a month now. So just for the ability to care, and that's with an $8,000 family deductible. Just let's put that into perspective that, again, when people want to say, you know, let's let Americans do the American dream and, you know, start up a business and have a small small business where crippling people with the ability to even afford health care is a reason why we have the golden shackles of working for employees for the benefits only. That's why a lot of people choose to work in places because the benefits are so exorbitantly expensive outside of the employee-based healthcare and that is such a backward system in my mind. Yep, I think it's a very harsh reality and I think uh, we're gonna have to unpack that a little bit more on a future episode. That's a good point. Well, let's let's focus on that for the next episode or episode 14, excuse me, because we've got episode 13 planned out. Sounds like a plan. With that, uh, let's wrap it up for today's session. Perfect. So as always, I'm AJ Montpetit and you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn at AJ Montpetit. And I'm a West Mirza. You can find me on Twitter at a West F Mirza. And as always, you can find me, Andy DeLeo, better known as Cancer Geek, on all of your choice of platforms when it comes to social media. And remember, whether it's influence, whether it comes to finding prescriptions, whether it comes to trying to make sure that you're not isolated and feeling lonely, relationships and medicine happen at the end of one. Please go to the podcatcher of your choice and give us a five-star rating. Give us any feedback, show ideas, or if you want to be a guest, send us an email at at theendpod at gmail.com. And remember, robots are your friends. <laughs> <laughs>